minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Anderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch, you can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. You can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. She is a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further, further ado, our guest for today is... Harry Tibano, Tibando, and he is the author of, well, I lose my page, A Citizen's Disclosure on UFOs and ETI. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me on, Gary. It's a pleasure. I think you've written a book almost larger than the Bible. <laughs> Uh, it is larger than the Bible. In fact, there's only uh, there's only one book I've come across that maybe uh, compares, and it's got about two thousand two hundred and some odd pages, and that's the Book of Urantia. Oh and yeah, yeah, I have that book too. There you go. I haven't read it. I got it. Uh huh. <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, when I wrote this, this was. Um, Essentially, all of my life experiences, the people I met, the books I read, the videos, the movies I've seen, uh, networking with other people. And um, for the most part, um, it, it was an eight-year project. And I, I started it back in 2009. And what I'm finding now in the UFO community is they're catching up to where I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I looked at the subject, uh, I had to see everything imaginable. I had to turn over every stone and look at it. And I had to toss out a lot of stuff that no longer was valid or that it was uh, meaning something else than what it was pertaining to. So if it was speculation, conjecture, interpretation, theory, wild theorizing, I had to really seriously look closely at it and decide whether or not it goes in the book or I just eliminated it. And so I started to eliminate a lot of information because I couldn't find hard, solid facts. My university education is um, uh, from the University of Victoria, and I majored in astronomy, math, and physics, and other sciences. So I have my head filled with a lot of what I call factual information, or at least how to track it down. Mm-hmm. That's what I was doing. And I had to look for the best credible sources. I had to look for at least three or four, what I call good, reliable sources on the same subject. If it was there, I used it. If there's only one or two, I, I really didn't use it at all. And if I did speculate in there, I would say 
this is my opinion, this is my rant, or this is uh, a speculation. But mm -hmm. I tend to leave a lot of that out. I wanted to give the best available evidence out there. And so these books, uh, which are really a volume of books, is essentially like university textbooks. They, they unfortunately have a university price because they're massive. Um, there isn't anything like it in the UFO literature. I've looked at a lot of books. I have a lot of books on my library shelves in the back there. Valet's books, Dr. Greer's books, uh, uh, Timothy Good, uh, I mean, it, it goes on and on, uh, Donald Kehoe, et cetera, et cetera. And the only thing that I found that even remotely came close was an encyclopedia on UFO and, and the phenomena, and it was written by, I think, Ronald Story. And, or Jeremy Clark. That was Biggie Burn, Jeremy Clark. And it's, it's nothing to even compare with what I've written. So when you get these books, if you have that opportunity, uh, I recommend the first volume because it's the basic primer. But if you wanted to dig deeper and find out some of the covert projects that are going on, the the black projects, particularly in the United States and in some of the other countries like Britain. There's some that go on in Canada, Australia, and almost any country that is friendly to the United States will have a program of sorts that is delving into the UFO mystery or the extraterrestrial phenomena, or they're reverse engineering some of this technology. Absolutely. Um, so how... So where did this all start for you? Like, like, like this is obviously an obsession. Something had to trigger it. Yeah. Well, let me. I, you know, it's funny. I I keep coming across other people's stories about uh, when they had their extraterrestrial encounters, and one of the the most famous ones was um, Barney and Betty Hill, who right. had their sighting in 1961. I, I know they Kathleen. Hmm? I know Kathleen Martin, the niece. Yeah. And they were coming across from back from Quebec from a vacation into New Hampshire, and they had their encounter. Now, now that was 1961. In 1953, I was in Quebec, mm -hmm. and my father was in the Royal Canadian Air Force, and we were transferred there. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a long story, but I'll try and keep it as simplified as I can. Um we were only five years old. My, my twin brother and I, we had a, a newborn who, well, he was about a year old. And we were living on a, um, a home on the air base for the servicemen. And this is a very a small uh, air base. And I can remember one day that my father said, I'm going to be playing baseball with the other servicemen on the base. Would you boys like to come and watch? We had nothing to do. It was a Saturday. So we said, sure. We, we went. We found out we're the only two spectators amongst a bunch of men playing baseball in, in, in uniform. And my brother and I started looking around, and we thought, well, we're bored already. And this was maybe about a half hour of watching. And we noticed that there was an aircraft on one of the tarmacs, and it was out in the open. So we took off, we ran towards it. And when we got towards it, we noticed that it had a swastika 
on the side of the, on the back of the tail had camouflage type painting on it and it had a tiny propeller in the front and basically two large wings, no back wings and, and a very large tail. We discovered afterwards that this was the uh, Major Schmidt ME-163 Comet rocket plane, the only one of its kind in the world. At least uh, we had a, um, one of it that somehow we captured or got it from the Britain, mm -hmm. uh, and they brought it over to Canada for us to look at and, and find out what made it fly and all the rest of it. Fortunately, the canopy was open, so we jumped up inside the, the, <laughs> the aircraft, taking turns, playing with the joystick and all the rest of it. This this aircraft was designed after a glider, so it had gliding properties about it, but it also had the aerodynamic ability to fly over 600 miles an hour when the rocket was ignited. It, it would take off, it had a set of wheels, very large, would take off, drop the wheels, and go almost vertically up. And what it would do, it would go up at a time just as uh, the Allied forces were coming in with their bombers and their aircraft. And so they were now up way above the other aircraft, and they would dive down uh, on this uh, squadron of, of aircraft and shoot. And because they came down so fast, nobody had time to react. They had to sort of pick it off uh, visually, you know, from their aircraft if they saw it. They did get hit, and so it wasn't a, uh, an absolute successful uh, aircraft by the Germans, but it, it created damage. Now, thus, one incident that occurred, rather sort of innocuous in its, in its own rights, um, but I think... The, the ETs were already in the vicinity, and I think they were monitoring what was going on here, what this aircraft was, etc. And I remember maybe a week or so later that we, my mother and I, and my youngest brother, we were taking him for a walk in the baby carriage along one of the streets beside some um, of the buildings on the airbase. And all of a sudden I saw a disc-shaped craft come flying in and sort of hover. And it kind of tilted a little bit. And I could tell that it was dark underneath, but light on the top with a dome or kapala. I said to my mother, what's that? And she looked up at it, and I don't think she even knew what it was. And she said, I think it's an airplane. And then it, it flew off. <laughs> so we had a daylight visual of about 500 feet. Within a day or two of that, I had ETs come into my bedroom. Now, the thing about these ETs is they reminded me of Casper the Ghost. Some people would refer to them as the Greys. Mm -hmm. I don't like that term. It's a racist uh, term, and it's um, a short-sighted, uh, weak perspective on the part of humans to describe something they really don't know. It's like uh, calling something that may look... Uh, scaly and reptilian-like as reptiles or reptilian, or things that look like insects as insectoids or mantis. Do those ETs exist? I don't have a doubt about it. But I wouldn't be calling them that. Uh, they would probably have their own names, and we will find out what those are. But at this point, 
we're still an immature species. Getting back to the story, they entered into my bedroom through the walls. In other words, they just came right through. I was so panicked by them that I was calling out for my mother because I didn't know what was going on. I was saying to her, there's little men behind the door and, and they're, they're coming through the walls and she thought I was nuts or having a bad dream or something. And she calmed me down and she went over and looked at behind the door and there's nothing, there's nothing there. So am I dreaming? I don't know. So she leaves and I'm kind of looking at the, the back of the door and the, and the wall and there they are, they're coming through again. And so now I'm in a sure panic. I'm waking up the whole house with my yelling and carrying on and all the rest of it. And she comes back in and she says, you've woken up the whole house. Uh, what is going on? I said, they're back, they're back. Go take a look. She looks the second time, nothing there. So thinking this still that I'm having a nightmare of some kind, she calms me down and says, look, Christmas isn't too far away. Think about Christmas and the presents you're going to get. <laughs> so after about five or ten minutes, she leaves me and she says, okay, no more crying. Go to sleep. So I go to sleep. Damn, they're persistent. They want my attention. Whatever it is, they're not giving up. This time they're coming around the bottom of the bed towards the, the top and I see them and I pull the sheets over my head thinking if I don't see them, they can't see me. They're not there. Typical five-year-old logic, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, but there was something and I fell asleep, but there was something in the back of my mind that said that the uh, covers came off me and I don't remember anything after that. Now, in the morning, I got teased by my my brother and uh, uh, my mother was saying, you, you just had a bad dream and so on and so forth. What I realized was that two, one, I started drawing pictures of space and rocket ships and stars and planets and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's usually a clue that something, uh, you know, significant or traumatic happened. Years later, I started to look back at that and realize that the ETs through the reading and research I was doing is they were using trans-dimensional or interdimensional technology, which allows them to move through solids. Mm -hmm. Their spacecraft does very much the same thing. I've seen space their spacecraft come in as an orb, and the orb would look red, and, and as it got closer to the ground, it would stop, hover, and then other orbs would come out of it of the same size. What they did is they nest inside of each other at different frequencies so that they move as one unit. So if they're coming, say, from their star system and planet to ours, they only need to take one craft and the rest of them are already inside so that they can move around in their own individual dimension of space but without interfering with the other dimensions of space that they're, they're traveling by. So the, the whole point then is they're not traveling in a linear fashion from point A to point B, but rather they somehow can move between dimensions, like phasing in, phasing out. Sometimes when you see them, they suddenly are there. Sometimes, boom, they're gone, die quick. 
Now, people would describe this as a portal, uh, and that's fine. Uh, if that's how they wish to understand it. I think it's more than just a portal or a wormhole. I don't think that that suddenly appears. That's a nice concept for humans to understand uh, of how we can travel at multiples of the speed of light. But they're doing it almost instantaneously, just like that. And so when they do that, there's a signature of their craft that's given off, a radiation, electromagnetic field, whatever. And I've discovered over the years, particularly that the U.S. military can know and track that signature. And when they track it, they'll know roughly where it's going to appear. So they suddenly fire off a particle beam weapon, uh, a missile of some kind, uh, something scalar that will knock it out. Do they always succeed? No, they don't. But on occasion, they do. And all of a sudden, the craft is now tumbling towards the Earth. And there are photographs or videos showing this craft that they targeted tumbling. And it keeps tumbling and tumbling, and suddenly, boom, it hits the ground. So the thing about this is that uh, the U.S. has figured out a way of knowing when and where these things are going to show up. And they have these um, scalar weapons in different countries, like Australia. And there's a famous video that shows this coming, this vehicle coming in towards Earth orbit. And all of a sudden, it backtracks and flies out. And at that moment, up comes a weapon of some kind uh, to target the craft that's no longer there. Now, that says to me, that they're able to not only monitor very uh, closely whatever it is that we're doing on the Earth, but they can be out in space and still monitor us, much like our satellites can pick up on photographs down to fine print mm -hmm. 200 miles out, or they can listen in on a conversation because they have the audio equipment, and they have other ways of doing this. So the thing is, you have to now understand that extraterrestrial technology is further ahead than we can possibly imagine. And frankly, if we were to get into a war, they'd be handing us our asses. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, th th this is a war we would not win. And on top of which, it isn't one species. It's a multiple number of species who, like we have the UN, they've got some form of intergalactic federation or planetary... Uh, unity of some kind, and it's made up of many different races. Yeah. So yeah. that's a little bit of it in, the, in a nutshell of how I got involved, and it just escalated over a number of years where I saw craft um, from the 50s, I saw craft mm -hmm. in the 60s, 70s, I've seen it almost every decade in, in different years, and I don't always see it, it just shows up when it shows up, and sometimes it shows up unexpectedly and I'm now a part of um, a CE5 group in operating out of Vancouver which I labeled C-SETI Vancouver after Dr. Greer's mm -hmm. C-SETI um, organization and I take people out as a coordinator into the field and we make contact with ETs and we've done it successfully for the last 30 years. Mm. When people say, when are we going to have content? We've already had it. Yeah. It's you know, not official, but we've already had it. You know, it's interesting because I had never saw, 
a UFO. And I always interview Preston Dennett a lot. You know, and Preston gave me his little technique, like the CE5 thing. And I would go out my backyard every night with my dog and I would try it. And then one night I try, I was doing it and I look up and I see something moving across the sky. I'm like, okay, well, it's got to be a plane. And I'm like, no, nah, it's too far away to be a plane. And I'm thinking, okay, it's got to be a satellite. And then it stops and it just takes off in the other direction. And I'm like, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it worked. And, and, and you know the reason why it works? I don't know why it works. Okay, th- let me explain this to you. <clears throat> As we tune in on a radio, or turn on a, uh, our TV and, and pick out a channel. Uh, we used to do a remote, uh, go up and turn the, the knob. Well, now we can do a remote control. And they do the same thing with consciousness. They'll, they'll find individuals who are radiating positive intention. And what they'll do is uh, they'll fly over so that you can see where they are. And in some cases, they come fairly close. And now they're really trying to get your attention. And if they get closer, they're going to interact with you. Hmm. Uh, and so, uh, for instance, there's uh, uh, Jimmy uh, Blanchett, who uh, is doing some interesting work with uh, high-powered radios and uh, using an antenna where he bounces signals off the moon and it uh, propagates out into the, the solar system and, and wherever else it goes. Now, the problem is, it's like dropping a stone in a pond, and you see the ripples, which are really quite strong towards the center, but as it moves away, the pattern uh, and the uh, frequency starts to diminish. So I would say that what he's doing may actually be effective within our solar system. But he's getting contact with that. Well, why is that? Well, he said, admittedly, he first put out some positive intention. He was aware of the CE5 protocols. Preston Dennett was also aware of the protocols Mm -hmm. and had spent some time with Dr. Greer. I've spent time with Dr. Greer and highly respect the man for what he does. Now, Blanchard uh, puts out this intention and then he takes out his walkie-talkie two-way radio, puts it on the top of his car, and he's just sort of meditating. All of a sudden, it's squelching and beeping. And he looks up, and he sees an object. And he feels now that he is getting this because they're interacting with his uh, two-way radio. So his thinking is, I've got to have a bigger radio in order to do this. And so he, he got himself 250,000 watts of power, <laughs> and he feels by blasting out there, that's the way to do it. But actually, it's got nothing to do with what he's doing. It's what's in between the his... intention. His gray matter, yeah, right? Yeah. Because that's what they were triggering in onto. So you have to understand something about extraterrestrial technology and why they do what they do. And when you start to understand it, you realize that uh, you can get a group of people who can go out uh, and form a circle of some kind, and they can all start meditating and putting up positive uh, intention and love and friendship and all that. And as they're meditating, they will then uh, try to go into a remote view of what they're trying to perceive. 
And they just let it happen. They don't force it. They just let it happen. It may not happen, but one or two may pick up on something. And so what happens is when you twig on to, say, an ET species or a spacecraft or a civilization on a planet, you give them an invitation to go and come and visit you on planet Earth. And so at that point, from remote viewing, you are now going to do what they call coherent thought sequencing, where you backtrack how you got out into the universe by showing them where you are. You show them the galaxy, the section of, of the, the galaxy, which is the solar system, our sun and the planets, and, and we're the third uh, planet from the, from the sun, and we show them whether it's night or day and where we are right down to the, our location and the number of people. You can do this. And it, it's just, I can do this just merely by thinking about it. Now, the difference is you also have to be in the right mind frame. So uh, you're opening yourself up to whatever the universe is trying to provide, if it's providing you anything. And so it perhaps in your case, you're out there, you're sitting out there in the dark and you're looking up and suddenly something shows up because you're trying to project your higher consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with Blanchett. It's the same thing with people in Tokyo, Israel. I'm, I'm being communicated with a lot of people, and it's all the same. And essentially, the meditation is the key, but you do have to have some equipment. And that equipment, uh, I tell people, is a magnetometer which goes with, uh, has beeps and squeals, or it may have a needle that goes back and forth and it squeals. The one I got basically uh, gives off a beeping tone and it's set on green. And when something shows up, it suddenly turns red and it will start to go beep, 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 beep. Sometimes it goes beep and you're waiting and waiting for about a minute and then it goes beep again. And you're looking around to see if there's any outside external sources interfering with it, like a radio tower, a microwave tower, or whatever. But if there's not, then you're picking up something that's not in the environment. Now, other times, I've had this magnetometer go off incessantly. It would, it would be for over an hour and a half, nonstop. And what I was getting was a download of information that was being imparted. And I'm, I've got this device in amongst 200 people down in Rio Rico, New Mexico, uh, being a part of Dr. Greer's group. And he eventually said, is there some way of turning off the sound? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I got a button on here. And I just hit the button and it went off. But it was still showing that there was an indication of communication. Mode. Now, other times, and this is not a part of what this device is designed to do, but it will beep in sequences of three. So I would say um, ETs use extraterrestrial technology to, to come to planet Earth. Beep, 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 beep. As if to say, yeah, that's correct. Uh, that you need to uh, clear your head of this and that. Beep, 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 beep. Three times. And it would do that for about a half an hour every time I was saying something. And then it would stop after I finished saying it. Now, the thing about a close encounter of the fifth kind is that you are making human-initiated contact 
and you're trying to establish a, a contact connection with extraterrestrial beings who may be flying over in their craft. They may have actually already landed. If they landed, you won't necessarily see their spacecraft because, again, it's out of phase. But you'll be able to pick up their presence. You know this by the fact that uh, there could be a sudden increase in the temperature of the environment. It suddenly feels warmer. Whereas you step off maybe 10 feet away and suddenly it's cool. And you come back in and it's warm again. What happened is they've landed and they've landed on top of you, but they're out of phase. Mm-hmm. People may start to see movement of some kind within the group. Even though we're all sitting down, there's something happening. Uh, you may see flashes of light moving around. Some people can actually see the beings. They'll come up and they start touching you. And when they touch you, it's like little insects or raindrops. Even though the weather's too cold or cool and the weather's clear, <laughs> what's going on? It's not one person experiencing this. It's everybody in the group. Some people come up uh, and will say, I just had a set of hands placed on my shoulder. And they look around and the next person's six feet away. So they know that that wasn't them. I've had a ET come up and go poke me in the forehead. And I again, I'm looking around. And they're five, ten feet away. So there's no way they can get up and sit down without me noticing that. So that's what they do. Different fragrances in, in the environment that are not associated with the environment. Uh, compression of sound. All of those things that Carl Sagan once said that any true alien technology will seem like magic. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? That's exactly what it seems to be. At least magic in the sense that we don't yet understand it. How can they do these things in a in a physical environment and still be out of faith that we cannot touch them in, in turn? It's a form of protection to us and protection to themselves. If the military flew in all of a sudden, they would be firing at people. <laughs> they wouldn't know there was mm-hmm. an ET crowd there. Uh, that's the way it is. Now, that's not to say that they can suddenly, uh, that they cannot uh, um, come into the physical reality and be a solid shape. And when they do, unfortunately, if, if they're around people like the military, the military, particularly like Russia, has had a situation where they fired missiles at one of these objects that was about 300 feet in size, a huge, huge craft. Mm-hmm. And the missiles did nothing. It kind of almost bounced off. And the uh, colonel was going to, going to give a, a second uh, command to shoot a second volley of missiles, and he did. And finally, uh, somebody of greater rank came and said, that's enough of that, stop that. We're not shooting off any more missiles. We're not hitting anything. And when he said that, the craft took off. What it was a demonstration of was that there isn't much you can do to us. And even if you could, uh, you know, we, we're not allowing ourselves to become vulnerable to your aggression. This is why there's the overflights of military bases and uh, weapon bases, not just in the States, up in Canada, over in Britain, in China, wherever there's nuclear weapons, they're flying over. Wherever there's other weapons of concern, they're flying over. If we're building a dam, 
they're going to monitor that. If, if we're going to throw up high rises, they're going to monitor that. We've had UFOs fly over Vancouver City. We know they fly over New York City. We know that they fly over any city. And the fact of the matter is they're watching us. Now, people say, well, then they got an agenda. And that agenda is not peaceful. It's not, um, it, it's potentially hostile. Well, how do you prove that if they haven't done anything hostile? Right. We are hostile. Right. right. The only argument for the hostility, I think, is like, you know, you know, them abducting or, or, you know, making contact with people. And, you know, some people say they're doing experiments or whatever. That's yes. the only evidence of hostility that I've ever heard. Right. That's, that's the abduction phenomena that goes on. And, you know, I cannot speak to that experience. I can't speak about my own experiences. I've never been abducted, as far as I know. Uh, I've never had any foreign implants on me. I'm not missing time. I've never had a medical intrusive procedure. People in the group with me have never had that either. In fact, every time we go out, we have sightings in, in the sky, maybe up in high orbit, uh, or we're having the ET contact. And we're all going away saying, that was great. When's the next one? You know? <laughs> so what I'm saying is, well, if you're having an abduction, why is it that they're not doing that to us? Are we chopped liver? Are we just no, we're no good or what? And yet, uh, the abductions that you hear about, uh, are so traumatizing to the individuals that they feel that it's aggressive. And I can understand that if you are taken out of your vehicle or taken out of your home, whether physically or astrally, because they also, people have mentioned they've been right. floated through uh, the window or the roof. And then they have these procedures. And what I have found is you can't negate what people tell you, but I can say have you considered something else that's happening? It's, for instance, a doctor uh, has a child brought in by some parents who says the child stopped uh, breathing and it's turning blue. And, uh, and the doctor looks at it and says, I think it's choking on something and does a trichotomy on the throat and opens it up and removes the, the object. Now, to the parents, He's not anesthetizing the, the kid. He's just making that operation right, right then and there and removing. So to the parents, he must look like the evil incarnate, right? But mm -hmm. in fact, he's actually saving the kid. Now, what I say to people is, let's just suppose that you had this abduction and they take in, say, um, sperm or ova or DNA uh, why would that be? And people will say, well, because they're making hybrids. Okay, fair enough question. I, I answer that in the book. I answer all of these questions in the book because I have to look at all sides of it. Mm -hmm. And I say, look, that may be very true. In which case, let's, again, make a, an assumption, a somewhat rational assumption, that if we're at a stage in our involvement on this planet where we're hostile and may suddenly start tossing nuclear weapons at each other, 
We're going to probably go extinct. We're going to do severe damage to this earth. And so the ETs have a grave concern for our survivability and for what we're preparing to do that may damage the earth beyond anything that will, uh, that it can heal from. Fortunately, the earth is, the earth is, is an entity too. It has life forces and we are dependent on that, on those life forces. We are part of the life force. So ETs then may say, look, if you're going to wipe yourself out, we need to make sure that humanity survives. We're taking a DNA, ovum, and sperm in order to make sure that we can ensure your survivability, either back on planet Earth again or on another planet. And it's like we have seed vaults in different countries, high, uh, sometimes high up in mountains and in, in through the mountains and it's cold. And, and so it keeps everything in rather... Uh, cool, uh, survivable, pristine condition so that in case the worst scenario happens and there are some humans who survive, they can go and get those seeds, which are basically the plants and uh, trees and perhaps animals that they can, you know, uh, do artificial insemination. Well, what's to stop the ETs from doing the same thing with humans? In fact, there are cases where ETs are running around picking up plants and, and seedlings and small animal life forms and everything imaginable because I think they're collecting their own seeds for their own vaults in case we destroy ourselves. Now, that's a hypothetical jump, but there's a rationale to it. And so I'm saying to you, as a person who's been abducted, consider yourself one of the lucky ones. Some part of you is going to survive, and you will be the new uh, pro, uh, progenitors of humanity. You'll be the new Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. Is that a bad thing or an evil thing? Right. In other words, it's how you look at Yeah. And a lot of people that I've interviewed and talked to who have had, that are experiencers, um, have been healed of maladies when they were returned. Some of them have come back with enhanced psychic abilities. Some have even come back with the ability to heal others. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, Preston Dennett talks about this. Uh, we, we, I know of cases in Montreal or in Quebec that uh, people who have had cancer and uh, they've gone out on one of these events because there's something they thought they would do as a, a last bucket wish, you know, of theirs. And Within a day or two, their cancer is gone. They don't know why. And they figured the only thing different was they went out and made contact with ETs. Now, what one person did was uh, they did this. They, it was a lady. She was cured. Uh, and then she had a cancer that came back again. And so she went back out with another group of people. And again, the second time, it, it disappeared. Is that serendipity? I don't know. But she feels strongly that the ETs did something like that. I've heard of a case where a person was deaf and had been deaf for most of his life. And after the event, he no longer had deaf deafness. Uh, it goes on and on and on. So I say, yes, if they're having contact, there are benevolent ETs 
that are doing positive things. Now, between you and me, I have issues. I have, I have diabetes and I now have arthritis in my, my limbs. I, I'm almost 75. And though I may not show my age, you know, I, that's how old I am or pretty close to it. So I've often gone out and said, well, look, I'm ready to receive my healing. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. If they want to do that, they'll do that. And I think that they know within my heart and my mind that if it's something I really want, they may provide it. But, you know, we all are going to get sick and we're all going to feel ill and we're going to pass away. There's nothing to stop that. That's the evolution of life on this planet. It's the evolution of all life throughout the universe. Absolutely. One of the things I, I talk about and I introduced into the um, the volumes, and I, I kind of scatter it through all of the, the volumes. It's, uh, it's not coming across too hot and heavy. But there's a quote from the Baha'i Faith that says, uh, Know thou that every fixed star hath its planets, and every planet hath its creatures, whose number no man can compute. Now, that's a, a writing from Baha'u'llah, the prophet, founder of the Baha'i faith. And that was written over 150 years ago, before anybody was actually talking about this subject. Uh, and yet he's saying that life exists everywhere. As long as that star is stable, and it's gone through the proto uh, uh, stage of development, and it's, no, and it's not at the end of its death, which is a nova type mm-hmm. of situation, then the planets will have also stabilized and there will be life on those planets or its moons. Now that quest, that begs the question, well, you know something? There may be more life in this solar system of ours than we realize. It may not all be intelligent, right? but it w- there will be life of some form. Hmm. Think of the extremophiles that uh, exist in very harsh conditions on this planet, yes. down in the ocean. In the vents, you know? yeah. The vents in the ice in, in Antarctica, mm-hmm. in the desert, deep down in the ground of at least 300 feet, there's microbes there. Uh, we got things that fly, things that crawl, things that walk, things that burrow, things that swim. This is an incredible planet. And, you know, at this time in our uh, evolution, in our generation, we're screwing it up. <laughs> Big time. So maybe that's why the ETs are really here. We're at the cusp of either what I call integration or disintegration. We're either going to move forward and advance into a highly uh, evolved society, which we will then probably label the golden age of humanity and civilization, or we're going to fall backward into a Stone Age situation. And, you know, we crawled out of the Stone Age through the last Ice Age. And there seemed to have been a collective amnesia. Well, well some now, people say both could happen too at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, uh, as a member of the Baha'i Faith, we're being told to scatter to all the corners of the planet. Why is that? Well, I believe, and without trying to overly speculate, because you can speculate till the cows come home, is that. If the worst is to happen, there will be some form of humanity that will survive. And 
we're hoping that at least some common sense and some spirituality survives, even if it's Baha'i or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, or that some element of humanity will survive. And it will, because life throughout the universe wants to thrive. It doesn't want to die out. And it will find a means to mutate or correct its environment or change its environment uh, or live within that environment uh, in a manner that uh, is conducive to both itself and the environment. Mm. I mean, a lot of this is not uh, rocket science or brain surgery or anything. This is just common sense. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, when I wrote the books, <clears throat> what I noticed is that there was a real uh, corruption in the database. It's flawed like crazy. And uh, people are still following the flaws. In fact, they build upon these flaws, so it becomes compounded. And the point of this is to delve back into some of these cases and re-examine them to see if they are truly valid or whether they were just elaborated upon. A person can have an experience and add in features that weren't there when they had the uh, particular event unfold. So witness testimony is critical. I discuss in my book how to be a, um, a great observer and witness so that when you do have an event, you can give it in very precise terms, hmm. looking at the evidence, not at what you think has happened. In other words, you can say, yeah, they're here for this, that, and everything, but that's not evidence because they didn't tell you, they didn't write it down, they didn't show you anything or leave anything behind to indicate that. But you may feel that inwardly because we have intuitive ability to understand a situation. If it's peaceful, we're going to understand the, the peacefulness of it. If it's hostile, we'll know about it. Now, do you think that humans were created by extraterrestrials or or at the very least came here from another planet? And here's my reason. I, I think we came here from another planet. And my reason for this is because we are bipedal. And we were the only all bipedal planet uh, creature on this planet that, in the bipedalism, doesn't necessarily match up with the gravitational force of this planet. It would be better, more better for a smaller planet with less gravity. Yeah, I, I I've heard of these uh, theories and understandings, and you know that again, more research has to be done on it. Uh, I can't say that when I wrote these books, I finally have contained all the knowledge mm -hmm. of UFOs and ETI into it. No. What I really think is I've got the tip of the iceberg, but that iceberg is a big iceberg, and it's <laughs> solid, and it's not going anywhere. And if you dig down deeper and deeper, you're going to find out all kinds of things. So uh, there's one part of me that says, I like to think I'm from Mars, that I may be That's a, what I a think Martian. Too, is that, maybe. Right? But I can't prove that. No. I have no way of doing it. I can look at some of the things like, okay, uh, we're designed for a longer day or maybe a shorter day. Uh, Mars has the same uh, re revolution uh, on its axis as we do. Uh, it has poles. Um, it, it has uh, conditions that are probably one time had oceans and seas and lakes and ponds and all the rest of them. In one of my books, or in two of the books, volumes four and five, I explore all of that. And I take you to 
all the planets in the solar system, but I spend a lot of time with Mars looking at the data. And what I found is, one, NASA says it's a cold, dead, lifeless, barren planet, and, and that's the end of it. It's dry. It's like uh, the planet Dune from the movie Dune, right? And the thing about this is that uh, there is life on it. And I know this because, one, of that quote from Baha'u'llah, but two, more importantly, I found the signs of life. I found the water, puddles and lakes. I found the vegetation, where some of it is still growing. Uh, it looks similar to Earth. Uh, there's trees that are bulbous with with foliage. There's others that look like giant uh, pine trees. I've looked at uh, sea life, that's uh, seashells and... and uh, uh, other things that used to be on our planet billions of years ago that's still evident in the rocks on Mars. I've looked at fossilized uh, animals. In fact, there's one picture I have. It's like a dumping ground for every species under the sun. There's cats and birds and reptiles and apes and uh, a lot of things. And it, and it pops out at you. And I'm saying, how can you misinterpret what this is? There's even signs. I've got a, a photograph of a limb that is being uh, uh, identified as being reptilian limb, and it's a large reptile, um, something that was prehistoric in our uh, evolution on this planet. I have found buildings, monuments, cities, when I talk about this, I'm not talking about play your favorite guest game. What is it? I'm saying I'm looking for artificial structures, geometric forms, things that don't fit into the environment unless somebody put it there. I found rebar in what appears to be a collapsed building. And amongst that, there's uh, a couple of faces. One looks like a robot head. And in fact, uh, Rich, um, Richard Hoagland was, got me really involved in this. I, I met him, but, but I've read his stuff. And he says, NASA goes apartment hunting. <laughs> so I went and looked at this and I thought, ah, I can't see anything. This looks like a pile of rock. And, and then I realized, well, wait a minute. I, I'm, I'm looking at it in the conventional way that I expect it to show a building standing upright with windows and doors and all the rest of it. What I had to do was to look at the structure of the what appeared to be rock. And as I looked at it, it had layer formations. It had rebar running through it. And as I looked around, there were objects that were sort of rectangular and what appeared to be a face. One looked like data. And so there is one crater on the moon where they took a photograph and they think they actually picked up this robotic head, which they lovingly and affectionately call data. Mm -hmm. And this is data too on Mars. You can see the eyes, you can see the mouth. And there's a different angle of it uh, taken from a separate photograph confirming its position. 
there's something else that looks like a seashell, but I don't think it's really a seashell. It's some kind of artificial structure that's bulbous, but has a tapered end up one side and a tapered end down the other side. I found things that look like giant cogs and wheels beside a uh, partially um, uh, uncovered colossal head that has eyes, and above the eyes is an orb of some kind. All of this is indicating artificiality. How about all pyramids? Of this is, all of this is indicating uh, that there's an intelligence here. Mm -hmm. I've also found, this is a kicker, in Volume 5, I found a large humanoid being close to um, a artificial man-made structure of some kind that looks like a flying craft or a land cruiser or could be a submarine because it was found in an area that once had water. There's even uh, uh, a piece of the of that um, craft almost right beside the body. And when you cut it out and paste it and put it over to where this other section is, and there's a slight square, it fits right in there, showing that it has two of these on the front of it. It has a nozzle on the end of it, but it's all melted and, and kind of deteriorated. When you look at the being, the being is a large being, has a head, a long neck, and a ribcage, and half of the ribcage is blown away and is, is a few feet away from the, the skeleton. And when you cut and paste that and put it where you think it belongs, it fits, and it shows the ribcage. Uh, there's something that looks like an arm. You can't see the legs uh, for whatever reason. I, I guess they're destroyed. And then there's a couple of other animals or whatever in the picture. This is all from NASA, NASA rover photographs. This isn't something that I could dig out. I just, I'm lucky to come across it. Now, if you go to look for that particular photograph by its number, you're going to have a hard time finding it because NASA has removed it. Huh. They do that all the time. <clears throat> so, so somebody you find something, found, they pull it. Pardon me? So whenever people find some of these unusual objects, they remove it. Yeah. And I, I almost missed it myself because I was looking at this artificial form, this call it craft of some kind, and I was about to click off and go to the next picture, and, and yet there was something that caught my eye that said there's something here that is more obvious that you didn't notice immediately, and this was the body. And now I found out somebody else has found another body of the same length as this humanoid. So what we're looking at is a, a humanoid that's probably nine or ten feet tall, and these are the ancient Martians. If you want to add more credibility to the photographs, you talk to people like um, uh, Joseph McGonagall, who uh, used to do remote viewing for Monroe uh, Institute and Stargate <laughs> and all the rest of it. And I sent him a note and said, I found your alien on Mars. Now, he's never gotten back to me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. I, I'm not too concerned. I gave him the information, gave him the picture, and I said, this is the answer to your remote view. <laughs> you know? So what we're being told by NASA is that, and I'm jumping all over the place here, but... What we're being told is not the honest truth. There is no apparent transparency. They will tell us what they want us to know. Uh, it's taken other uh, nations to travel to Mars to find out 
for themselves through their orbiters what's on the surface. And even though Britain tried to land an object on this surface, it, for some reason, um, impacted and destroyed, and they don't know exactly where it is. But they have taken pictures of the Cydonia region of the Great Face, mm -hmm. and it confirms it's a Great Face. <laughs> There's all kinds of other structure around that as well. Now, the thing about all of this is that NASA was trying to cover up and say, well, it's a trick of lightning shadow. That didn't work. I've got a book by a couple of of uh, astrophysicists and, and astronomers who, uh, by the name is Carlotto and, and I forget the other person, and they show black and white photographs and pictures of pyramids and all the rest of it, and they, they measure them and all the rest of the alignment, etc., etc. Hoagland did the same thing and said... Uh, that this is artificiality. They cannot cover this up and say this is trick of light and shadow because there's different angles from which it was all taken. And then when they tried to reproduce the image, they degraded the image and removed some of the pixels, and so half of the information's gone. And it looks like a like a uh, Hoagland says it looks like a kitty uh, uh, kitty litter, <laughs> you know, a cat's kitty litter. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, he's right. Half of the information, you know, and they think that we're not aware of this because there are brilliant minds out there, far more brilliant than I will ever be in my lifetime. And yet, you know, they're going to dismiss this because um, it's better to say it doesn't exist or it's a lie or whatever. And so the question, therefore, is when NASA sends a craft to Mars and its rovers, what are they looking for? Are they looking for the ingredients for life? Because now they admitted there is an atmosphere. They've also admitted there is methane in the atmosphere. And they're saying there is ice water on mm -hmm. Mars. They're not coming out and saying there's water. They're just saying ice water. Could be methane or frozen carbon dioxide. All of these things. The sky uh, they're showing is pink, but in fact it's blue because it's known as the Raleigh effect, which means that if you're on a planet, uh, particularly in this solar system, and there's not a lot of heavy clouds, uh, what you're going to see is a blue sky. And again, I talk about that in one of my books. I mean, whatever science I need, I pull it out and I utilize it. Hmm. And so what they're finding out now, and what I believe is going on, is they're searching not for life. They'll find that but they're looking for technology, ancient technology. And when they find it, I think it's like saying, you stick a flag in it, mark the location, and, you, and then you go off and look for the next one. So that when they finally do land on Mars, and some people believe they already have done that, that they'll go around and examine these flagged areas or these marked off areas by latitude and longitude and start digging. And, you know, what they're going to find is there's going to be areas in the solar system that have uh, some form of civilization, whether current or in the past. Uh, and if I believe correctly that life wants to thrive and survive, then there is an intelligent Martian life form on the planet. It's humanoid of some kind. And it may be under the surface or in protective uh, domes or whatever they have 
to to survive. And there is video that shows what is termed as a UFO flying off the surface of Mars and above the hills. And they show that. How do you explain that away? (laughs) (laughs) Because that's supposedly only on Earth. and We all have to be as blind as bats. Mm -hmm. Because we don't know. We're stupid human beings. No, we're not. We're very intelligent human beings. And anybody worth his salt will have an education of some kind. And if you're looking for a bird and it doesn't look like a bird, and if you're looking for a balloon or an airplane or a comet or a, a, a funny cloud, you're going to know what it is. But if it suddenly comes flying in, hovers, stops, brightens up, and then suddenly flies off in the opposite direction, you're going to know that that's not necessarily man-made. Right. It has those hallmarks. How about yeah. Venus? Do you think there's any way for life to be on Venus? I'm sitting on the fence on that one because what I've seen is um, the, uh, what is it, uh, the Martian, uh, the um, Venusian probe by Mars, and I can't remember the name offhand, said that they thought there was some form of life on it. Um, now, it's a, it looks like a very hostile planet, probably as hostile as Iopa, uh, Io, the, one of the moons of uh, Jupiter. It's basically a, a volcanic erupting planet that uh, I think uh, uh, Spielberg got his idea for uh, that uh, planet where they were fighting out the, the lightsaber duel between, uh, uh, what is it? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Anakin yeah. Skywalker uh-huh. and, and Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan, yeah. Right, right. And he used that. He knew about that. He used that in the movie, at least the um, semblance of it, right? Now, people are going to say, well, that, if that's the kind of planet it is, it probably doesn't have any life forms on it. Well, wait a minute. We're, <laughs> we're looking at things down at the bottom of our oceans, right beside those uh, uh, volcanic vents, and they're, they thrive. They're living. Because even the smallest of things, and we've just gone through a global pan- pandemic where... The two two years, there was a lockdown almost in every country. And that little bugger of a virus kept mutating and mutating and mutating. So we had different variations of it. And we had to get inoculations for this, that, and everything else. And they're still asking us to take uh, inoculations. Uh, I've had four or five already, and I've reached my my fill. I'm done with it, you know. If I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And I'm not going to worry about it because I know there's an afterlife of some kind. But the thing is that why should I live in fear over a little bug that perhaps I can or cannot do anything about? And all it wants to do is survive. I think that little bug, um, the virus, is uh, partially uh, due to nature and partially due to humans tinkering with nature. You know, and it isn't just one nation doing this. This is this is several nations who have been fooling around with uh, 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 viruses. And uh, normally, when you create a virus, you get a, you better find the antidote for it. Otherwise, it's an out of control virus. Um, my uh, daughter and her husband had COVID. It was like a bad flu for them. They're young people. So what that tells me is that some people uh, with weak compromised uh, immune systems may fall victim to it. 
others who look after themselves, eat properly, uh, uh, exercise to some degree, whatever, maybe keep their social distance and wear their mask. I mean, I've taken people out on a CE5 field expedition, and we stand 10 feet away, and we all wear masks. That's it. And if, uh, or we take the mask off, but when we get up and move around, we put the mask back on because we don't want anybody saying, your event caused me to get COVID. I'm going to sue you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So you do what you have to do and you try and be rational about it. And, and so this is the whole thing. Now, here's something else to consider. People who say they had physical contact with ETs, I, I would say to them, so what did you do or what did they do to overcome the cross-contamination of viruses and bacteria? Oh, well, we never thought about that. Well, they must have done something. Well, that's a lot of speculation right there. Now you're going to ask me to speculate that they did something, but you weren't aware of it because you had this physical connection or interaction with them, you've had your medical procedure, and you didn't come down with any viruses of some kind or another, uh, and yet you want me to believe your whole story? You haven't answered some very basic questions. This is something in the UFO community that has not been answered, has not been dealt with, because that's highly important. And why, in all of our history of this phenomenon that we can at least record witness accounts has it always been it's the short little grays that we're encountering. I've encountered other beings. Some of them are tall. Some of them are, um, I think, a reptilian. Although, again, I, I don't like using that word, but I have no other words to describe them. I didn't ask them who they are or what they were or where they came from and how did they get here. The moment I do that and ask those type of questions, I'm going to have the military on my back. So I stay clear of that. If they land and they're physically in my presence or some kind of presence, I will ask them, is there anything you would like to ask me? Is there anything you'd like to know? And then I would say to them, is there anything you can tell me? Open-ended questions. Allowing them to, to feel free to answer me in whatever form or not what they want to reveal. I have people who say they've revealed to me all kinds of mathematical and physics equations. And I'm thinking, well, that's fantastic, you know. Uh, did you do anything with those equations? Did you show it to some professor in physics? Uh, you know, in other words, what was your next step when you got that information? Did you just sock it away and say, oh, look, here's what the ETs gave me. <laughs> I'll put it back on the shelf now. Right? Uh, it's like saying, well, I went on board the spacecraft and some people say, did you get anything? Did you pinch something just to say that it's, it's, it came from an ET? <laughs> I never go down that path. I wouldn't mm-hmm. even think about that. I would say, look, I've got something. It, it's it's just a token of my friendship and my desire to stay in touch and communicate with you. And so here's that something. If they wish to give me something, that's fine. Just the experience is something. I've got, I'm going to tell you something, and that is I got ETs that hang around my house all the time. 
and uh, I, I'm down in the family room upstairs. Uh, we can hear movement around the house as if there's somebody else up there. Sometimes I feel that there's a presence in the room down below in the basement area or, you know, the lower part of the house. My backyard camera has caught orbs coming out of the house, moving around the backyard, then going uh, back towards the house, but towards the corner. And some of these are big blobs uh, of some amorphous, it's either an orb or an entity. Mm-hmm. And there's some of them are, are tiny, and some are zipping all over the place. And I think, well, wait a minute, there's not too many bugs out right now. And these are showing up where the weather's still cool. It can't be insects. So what is, what's moving around? I've seen one that came down out of the sky and went right back up. Unfortunately, I foolishly deleted that off the camera. I've been trying to collect a bunch of these videos and save them so I can show people. But I've had things where um, they were like some beings in a sort of a holographic state at the corner of my bed. And I could tell they wanted to communicate, but I didn't want to because I said, guys, I was out in the field earlier. That was your time to communicate. (laughs) I'm going to bed now. If you really want to communicate, you can communicate in my lucid state Mm -hmm. or in my dreams. But I'm getting my sleep. I'm tired. That was fine. They they took off. I had another situation uh, where I suddenly had a, a light in the bedroom where the window is and I've got blinds there and I thought the light was coming through until I realized it was inside of the, the room mm-hmm. and it was sort of a hazy light with a with a brighter center but it was all undefined it was hard to make out any shape and I, I, I said to my wife look there's a light in our bedroom here you know and, and it filled up from one side of the room to the other and and then it disappeared well, later on the night, she gets up and she goes to the washroom, comes back, and she sees a light go underneath the bed. <laughs> mm. You know? So, like, there's something going on. So I, I said, look, if you guys are going to show up, you're welcome. Think of this as a safe home, if you feel it's safe. And I said, the only thing I'm asking is at some point, at some time, you will stay and communicate with me. I want to know about you, and I want you to know about me. That's all I ask. Hmm. So, uh, there's life in the universe. And I know oh, about. absolutely. There's life. <laughs> and there's life here on Earth, and there's, you know, this interdimensional phenomenon, which is absolutely amazing, and how it's all connected to consciousness. I mean, it, it is. It, it's is amazing. It, it really is truly amazing. What is your opinion on recovered crafts and reverse engineering? Do you think that that, that actual crafts have crashed from, yeah. from something that's because like so one time people say, well, if they're so advanced, why would they crash? Exactly. Why travel light years to get here only to crash? And like that's going to be disheartening for the ETs because uh, something obviously went wrong, and we don't know whether they're just as fallible as humans are and they did something wrong or there's something about our atmosphere that isn't conducive to their craft or whatever or were they shot out of out of the air or shot out of space 
And the thing is that uh, it's a little bit of everything. Uh, and, you know, when we think of Roswell, we're thinking in terms of what occurred in America. But we can go back a little bit further to around 1941, 1942, uh, with the uh, Missouri crash. And I'm trying to think of the uh, the incident. It's mm-hmm. uh, just you, you know the one where I, they, I know the one. I just we did an episode on it. Yeah, yeah, and they gave the last rights to the ET. Right now, that was 40, 41, 42. America knew about that, right? Mm-hmm. And that means that that craft somehow came down, whether it was shot down or whether it was, it, it had some problems. Now, going back further than that, the Germans knew about this because they were building. Uh, alien, or they were building flying saucers that actually flew. And I have uh, not only photographs, but I have a short little snippet of video that came from Dr. Greer showing this craft moving over the tarmac. And it's not very clear because it's old film. Uh, I, the dark spot that's on it is probably the Iron Cross or the swastika, but it's it's ill-defined. So uh, someone's got a good picture of this, maybe a, a lot longer version of the of the video or the or the film. But interestingly enough, now he, he, here's some history to think about. Sector Palace uh, developed uh, the Rama method of, of calling in the spacecraft, and he he has attracted literally hundreds if not thousands of people to go down and be with them and watch and bring in the spacecraft and have some kind of a, uh, communication with the ETs. Dr. Greer has also done this, and he's taken it a, a, a few steps further and de- developed protocols and whatnot. And I utilized the protocols before I met him, and I know that they work. So I didn't know, I didn't have to go with him or be with him to see it in action. It was already happening. I've actually had a TV crew do an interview with me uh, from the Discovery Channel for their program called Alien Week, where they went around the U.S. and Canada interviewing people, and I was one of the people they interviewed. And um, while we were there, a craft showed up about a mile away as a like a white blob, and I heard about uh, this because there were some people saying, look, look, over in the background. And I was too busy talking, but I was able to look over this guy's shoulder, the interviewer, and sure enough, it came over the top of a mountain ridge and dropped down and hovered there. And there was probably two that were there, and we caught it on video. Now, when I was looking at this uh, interviewer as he's asking questions, I think to myself, do I tell him to turn around and point his camera, or do I go for credibility? <laughs> I went for credibility. The moment I thought that, boom, the craft went over the over the top of the mountain. That wasn't the only craft that we saw. We saw a large triangular craft later on pacing us down the highway as we're going to another meetup point. Now, the thing that I'm saying here is that they're always observing us and they know whether or not it's safe to engage with us or not. And it depends on where is the, the nearest military base? And is it a, a, a base that has jets and, and, you know, all kinds of stuff on it? And if so, they may reconsider about trying to make a contact. 
So we try and go out into areas that are a little bit more remote. But there have been craft that have come down not only throughout the States, but in Germany, uh, 1936, the Bavarian mountain or forest had one and the beings were alive. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to some of the people from Operation Paperclip, who are Nazi uh, Germans and who worked on the rocket program and other programs, they said, well, where did you, how did you get so far ahead? How did you advance? And they said, we had help from them. They made that distinctly clear. Uh, Hermann Oberth stated that. Now, that was before the U.S. was even getting involved in any of this stuff. Why do you think there was a mad dash to get into Germany because uh, they were wanting the scientists and they were wanting the projects they were working on. They knew of the V2 rocket, the V1, the V2, which is the, the first sort of stealth type bombers. They knew that they were working on saucers. They knew they were working on ray guns and all the rest of it. The Russians were interested. The British were interested. The French were interested. We uh, were part of what the British were doing. And the Americans were interested, all trying to get in there. And the Americans got the lion's share of that. And they got 1,500 scientists and some of their technology. And we got Von Braun. (laughs) Von Braun and Hermann Oberth and a few other well-known ones. Now, the interesting thing is, you start to look at some of these early photographs, like George Adamski, who said, I had a contact, and the being was a tall, blonde, uh, blue-eyed, uh, humanoid, and he came from Venus. And uh, he warned him about certain things and all the rest of it. You look at the craft, and it's the same damn craft as the German Hanabu too. <laughs> and he said, you know, he said, when I think back about when he spoke to me, he did seem to have a German accent. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> but People took him seriously, even got uh, some kind of a medal or medallion or something from the Pope at the time. And and I think he even had royalty interested in what he was doing. The point I'm getting here is that by this time, the U.S. had already uh, acquired some of this material. And the, the Roswell crash, uh, they thought it was some form of spade-shaped um, craft, a delta wing or something like that, not a saucer. But there were apparently more than one crash. Mm -hmm. I've heard there's up to three crashes that took place. Canada was working on uh, its Avro Aero, which was highly advanced aircraft, more so than the U-2 bomber or or, uh, high-altitude aircraft. It could have gone up there and easily followed that with no problems. Uh, and then uh, it introduced a lot of concepts. But they were also working on a spade-shaped craft that had its a central uh, uh, jet propulsion in the center of the craft, and it was shaped like a spade. Now, the question is, did one of these craft actually take flight, and was it mistaken as a UFO, or was it designed and enhanced to be more uh, aerodynamic and, and more maneuverable, we don't know. But they were working on other saucers, and they have a, a plant and uh, with diagrams. I've, I've got the book that shows all of this. 
So the thing is, humans were working on this at the same time that all these crashes were taking place. And I think there's an amalgamation of human technology with extraterrestrial. And somewhere along the line, they figured it out. And there was breakthroughs. And again, Dr. Greer says that through his witness contacts, that roughly around the early 50s, probably the mid-50s to the late 60s, they had breakthroughs on electro, uh, electromagnetism, anti-gravity, and gravitics. And so they, that was the, the key to flying these craft. What they've done is because they brought down a lot of different craft, they figured out the, the mechanism, the propulsion unit of how to install it into any craft of any design, whether diamond shape, disc shape, ball shape or spherical shape, whether triangular shape, whether boomerang shape, uh, square shape, any design you can think of, they've incorporated that in. Things that look like uh, flying submarines. And there's evidence to support that people who had contact with these that actually landed, the people that got out were military people. <laughs> you know, so you're saying, wait a minute, let's pull, let's pull back on the rays on that a bit and examine that. Because uh, popular uh, mechanics and popular science had uh, stories about that. It was called the G2... Uh, anti-gravity, something, uh, and it looked like a torpedo, but it was large enough for people. And now there are things that are like as huge, if not longer, uh, that look like submarines flying off into space. And one can only imagine how big these craft go. I've heard them go uh, that they've built some that are a couple miles in size, where there's like more than four or 5,000 people on board and that they have transfers all the time and there's secret locations where they land and change out the crew and other ships go up and, and all the rest of it. Well, look at what the Germans have proposed. The Germans had the flying disc, the Hanabu, the Varel, uh, various versions of that, and various versions of the Hanabu. They had uh, the, the Glock and they also had the Andromeda, which was a large cigar-shaped craft which was designed to hold other craft in. This was all before we even heard anything of what the Americans were doing. And yet, the Americans are the ones that are suddenly <laughs> bringing this stuff up. And, and, you know, all of that being said, when a, a, an extraterrestrial craft comes down, it has beings on board. Do you not think that they're going to analyze those beings, look at the DNA, look at their bone structure, their skin structure, everything that's anatomical about them, and find the differences and similarities? I would. That's yeah, what a scientist would do. And so the question now comes into being, which sort of starts to explain some of the abductions, is that these abductions, uh, which... One of the words that has been used is military military abduction or my labs is actually using uh, cloned hybridized uh, ETs that look like ETs. It's it's the old uh, statement: is it Memorex or is it real? Right. And so the question then is: what is a real ET and what is 
a man-made ET. And, and so they've come out with terms like programmable life forms. And these programmable life forms essentially look like greys. Their heads may be even slightly larger. They have black uh, oval-shaped slanted eyes that seem to have some kind of lens covering on them. One of the people, and I'm getting into volume two when I'm discussing this with you, but in volume two, Daryl uh, Sims, who's known as the alien hunter, uh, had a case where a woman was constantly having abductions and, and ET showing up and it was driving her nuts. She wasn't getting any sleep. Her sleep patterns were all off. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fight back. Next time you're aware of it and they're approaching, fight back for all that you're worth. So she did that. And when one of these ETs showed up, she was punching and scratching and she pulled off an eye covering off one of the ETs and there was electrical circuitry in, in behind the eye. Mm. In other words, this was a programmable life form. I don't think even Daryl Sims was aware of it, although I would suspect he knows about it, but I don't know if he, he put it together and figured it out. I use that image with electric circuitry in it as a, a part of, of volume uh, two. <clears throat> and it's in there. And I explain the story and all the rest of it. So what I'm getting at is programmable life forms uh, are real. There was an individual from uh, Peacemore, uh, United Kingdom, who was a security guard for an underground facility where they were making uh, gray ETs and reptilian ETs. And he said he was walking through the hallway when two large men, you know, like humans, came by, and they had this big lizard-like creature between the two of them. And he, and he just sort of got himself up against the wall, and he said that creature was so powerful looking, he kind of taken over and knocked these two guys out and dealt with me with no problem. And yet he, it, it was peaceful, and they were walking it down the hallway to a, another area in the facility. Now, the thing is, his testimony is up on YouTube, or it was up on YouTube, mm -hmm. but it was on the Internet. And he's also being... Uh, uh, interviewed by uh, uh, what's her name, Cassidy. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of her first name, Carrie Cassidy, and uh, she interviewed him because it was also one of Dr. Greer's witnesses. Uh, so the thing is that there is obviously information there. Now he says they've got underground facilities like this throughout the United States. They're up in Canada, they're over in Australia, they're in Britain, and there's probably other places like South America where they're, where they're showing up. And uh, we will never know the extent until the military come clean, and it's not likely they ever will. They're going to keep that to themselves because they're not known to give away their best information in case their so-called enemies find out about it and try to do the same thing. Right. Yeah, then they're giving up their advantage. Why would they do Giving that? up their advantage. Now, I it, I know that all sounds like speculation, but again, you, you have to kind of take that and follow it down the road that it leads you and see where it goes. And if it comes to a dead end, then maybe that's all you're going to get out of it. And, and then you have to decide, do I use that in my book or do I just discard the whole thing? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, 
that's the the situation, you know, at, at this time. Um, it's it's left a lot of people up in a lurch because they really don't know what they're dealing with. If you see a craft flying around, you say, "Well, is that ET or is that man-made?" Because they're so similar now. And I say to you, "Does it look like it's fabricated? Does it look like nuts and bolts?" If it is, it's man-made. If it looks like a ball of plasma uh, or a fluorescent light that blinks in and blinks out and disappears and all the rest of it, that may very well be E.T. And we know that uh, E.T. craft behaves in a certain fashion. So now you have to... uh, UFO researchers have to be good consumers of the event. They have to know what it is that they're looking at. Because I hear stories all the time of blinking lights and they're in certain formations and one goes one way and the other goes in the opposite direction. And others say the whole thing moves in unison, which could be one craft or many craft. So the thing is, you have to understand what you're looking at. Yeah. Having the right equipment photographing it, looking through binoculars. If you've got a night uh, scope or binoculars and seeing it in, under that light condition, that will help to reveal more information. I've seen military jets chasing after these things, and I've seen it down in the States. I haven't seen it up in Canada, but I've seen it down in the States on at least a couple of occasions. <laughs> one was a very... Um, one was was a triangular craft that suddenly shot up and went up into space and looked like a star when it got up there twinkling. Another one was uh, a large uh, ruby red pulsating disc that flew across the top of the sand dunes in near Crestone, Colorado, and followed by a jet. (laughs) (laughs) You knew what the jet was. This other thing was different. And then I seen another one where... I'm communicating with a uh, craft on the ground using a high-powered uh, floodlight, and they're responding back to me. And all of a sudden, uh, along comes an aircraft, and I'm watching with binoculars, so I know what I'm watching. And along comes this aircraft, and it fires something down into the group of craft on the ground, and all the lights suddenly go out, boom, gone, like that. And when it did that, another what I call a fast walker craft, ET craft, can blitzing across from the San Padre Mountains right underneath the jet and over towards the San Gray de Cristo Mountains, which is about 60 miles across. Mm -hmm. And it did it with probably within two seconds. And it looked like the jet froze in the sky. That's how fast it went. People say, you can't see that. And I'm saying, yes, you can. And I had to sit down and work out the mathematics of that. And the mathematics of its speed, if you were doing it per hour, was roughly about 90 to 100,000 miles per hour. Wow. Yeah. But it's about 15 or, or more miles away. So I knew that there's a, a, an ability to capture that within the space and the time frame in which it occurred. It's incredible. It's incredible. And, then, and, as, and as, the, as the thing went across and beyond the San Crystal uh, Mountains, the, the the military craft continue on. And when it left and got to roughly the same side of, as these mountains, all the lights on the ground came back up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Wow. And that's my that's my experiences that I've been, you know, fortunate to have. Fantastic. Man, I would love to have you back on again and continue this conversation. I hope you'd come back. I've got I've got so much information. Because this, this is a great interview, man. I, I learned a lot. Talked about I, a lot. I'll bore you to death. <laughs> uh, this is not boring. Not boring to me anyway. I, yeah. I'm Thank you very much. I'm amazed by all this. I've had other people say the same thing. They want me back on. Once they hear my story and they realize I'm taking this from a whole different perspective, uh, and I try to be rational, reasonable about it, uh, because people are speculating to the cows come home. And, you know, the problem is you, you turn on the TV and you watch ancient aliens. And one of the things they do justify their claims by saying, this is the theory amongst ancient alien people. Right, mm -hmm. so I'm glad they throw that in there, but it's what I call docu entertainment. In other words, you're going to get some information, but you're going to get a lot of speculation, mm -hmm. a lot of conjecture, and a distortion of the truth. In fact, unfortunately, when they talk about certain religions like Zoroastrians and and the and the person with the wings and the giant halo or ring around him, they say, "Well, that's a craft." No, it's not. That is a icon of a, a deity or a, um, a person who has divinity. And if you tell, if you tell Zoroastrians that's an ET, they're going to be really upset with you. You know, you, you, you cannot mess around with people's religions, particularly mm -hmm. when they've had thousands of years of following and reading and trying to live that life, whatever that may be. And, you know, what you have to have is a healthy respect. Does that mean that there were no ETs or uh, alien spacecraft in ancient times? Of course there were. We have never been alone. But what I'm saying and what I uh, talk about in these books, particularly in Volume 1 and later on in Volume 6, is that uh, we have to be respectful towards the spiritual side of this uh, phenomenon. I had a friend who said to me, is there anything spiritual about UFOs? And I said, yeah, a lot, a lot. But we have to put it into context, and we can't speculate um, because we know that many of the divine prophets perform miracles. And if you were looking at, say, who's the greatest miracle uh, performer, I'd give it to Moses. He parted the seas and had right. the wind and port the plagues and all the rest of it. Well, okay, uh, and then you say, well, uh, Christ uh, raised the dead. He fed the millions or thousands uh, with a few loaves of bread and some fish. And uh, he um, walked across the water. And, and, and yeah, those are miracles. But one of the things in the Baha'i faith that says um, miracles are for the weak soul. In other words, they require that as a, as a, a form of proof. Whereas... I could give you a basic truth in saying uh, today it's um, it's overcast, but tomorrow I know it's going to be sunny, and you will see the sun out, and it will be warm. Well, that's a truth, and the next day when it occurs, you're going to say, he told me the truth. Even though I didn't see it, I accepted it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a distinction between what is said and understood from the word and what is said and done by a deed in order to convince that person. Hmm. I have no doubt that Christ was the Son of God. I have no doubt that 
Moses um, spoke to God, that Muhammad was the friend of God. And Abraham was one of the very first who said, from his lineage, all prophets and, and nations and kingdoms would come, you know, which he did. So what are these individuals? These individuals are uh, prophets from God with the same message used to explain things to the people of their time. Yeah, It's the golden rule. It's always been that. And when you start to understand that, then you're starting to understand spirituality and you start to ignore the actual physical aspects of that person or uh, whatever and, look, and focus on what they're teaching you. Do unto others as you would do unto, uh, they would do unto you. Yeah, stop being love those as they would love you. Stop being assholes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, 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 and you know, so as a Baha'i, we say, look, it's all about the spiritual aspect. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with performing miracles. Um, what we're trying to do is say, be the best Christian you can be. Be the best Jew you can be. Be the best Muslim, the best Buddhist, the best Hindu, whatever. You know, be the best. Be the best Baha'i that you can be. And that's your attitude. It's yeah. your behavior. You eliminate hatreds and prejudices. Gosh, if we can't do that with our own fellow man, how are we going to do it with E.T., who looks different than us? It's going to be a little tricky, that's for sure. <laughs> We're going to have a heck of a problem, you know? Because one of the things that uh, Dr. Greer matches on to, he said, look, we're all sentient, we're all intelligent, and uh, we're aware. And he says, ETs are very much the same way. We have that in common. We may not share the same consciousness. We may perceive things differently. We may even look differently. We may have four arms and two legs. Or we may look shaggy and furry. Or we may look tall, look very small. We may look lizard-like or, or whatever. The point is, it's intelligent. And, you know, if we were suddenly to die out, we would think, what other life form could replace us on this planet? We know the cockroach can survive almost anything. Mm -hmm. We also know that even the ant is industrious and, and, and that the bees and wasps have a high community of sorts. So there's all kinds of things waiting in the background that can replace us given enough time and evolution. Because life wants to survive. <laughs> That's what it wants to do. It sure does. And so it, to imagine then out in the universe that there are other life forms and intelligent beyond our calculation, then we have to be open and receptive to that. And one of the things I, I finally discuss in, in volume six is uh, we talk about uh, world unity before galactic unity. You can't join the Galactic Federation unless you're unified on your planet. That's absolutely that's right. That's right. If we want to get into the Federation, we got to get our own and they're, and that's what own they're house here. in order. They're, that's what one of the reasons why they're here. They're both explorers. They're uh, anthropologists. They're uh, exobiologists. They are people who are watching our evolution. We're at a critical time right now. Very critical. And whatever we do, within the next 20 years or so, will determine what direction we're going. And I'm hoping that common sense and, and uh, level-headedness rules the day. 
I hope so. That there are wise people who say, enough is enough with the way we've been going on. It cannot continue. We've got to eliminate hatred and prejudice. We've got to uh, save the environment. We've got to uh, perhaps make the farmer the most important profession on the planet. <laughs> because without food, we don't survive. Right. Right? And if every green thing under the under the earth or on the earth is dead, what are we doing here? We're, we're, we're going to go. If we're killing off everything in the ocean with plastic and pollutants and all the rest of it, you know, <laughs> water is valuable. You know, we're, we're water, essentially. Mm-hmm. 95% of us at least is water. And when the oceans go, we go. If the, if the bees go and the frogs go and everything else that's there, then uh, humanity doesn't have a chance. So we have to start coming together, solving the problems, putting away the toys or the implements of war, turning what the Bible says, uh, weapons into plowshares. And, uh, you know, all of that is true. All of that is valid. And so uh, if you are in a nation where you don't like your leader, remove him. Remove him from office. Put somebody in there that you can trust who will work for the people. Don't continue on with the same nonsense that I either vote for A or I vote for B, and neither one is is any use because they're doing the same damn thing. Mm-hmm. Up in Canada here, we have three or four parties, and we watch them like hawks, and uh, so do the, the other parties that try to say, well, the liberals are screwing up. You should have conservatives. And, they, and the NDP, the New Democratic Party, would say, Oh, they're both wrong. You should have the, <laughs> you know, instead of pointing out the error of your ways, what are you going to do to make the situation better? Right. What is it about your party that will make everything well and good for the majority of people? Hmm. You know, and, and those are the things that I discussed. Some of those things in, in this book, this is about the human condition and how they deal with extraterrestrial life. Yeah. And I can tell you, it's frightening what we're doing. I agree. So i got to wrap this up, but I want to thank you. This is a pleasure having you on. This is a fantastic interview. I'm going to definitely have you back again. Before we go, uh, I want to uh, let our listeners know that these books, the a Citizen's Disclosure on UFOs and mm-hmm. ETI, there are six volumes. Yes, they are expensive. They're like a university text. But one of these books is like three or four books that you would normally buy, which you will probably pay the same amount of money. And they're filled with lots of colored pictures to keep you entertained if that's what you want to do. <laughs> but you can get them from any major bookstore, only online, which means you'd have to order it from Amazon, Burns & Noble, Booktopia, Bookworld, Hudson Books, Book, uh, Book of Millions. Uh, that's up in the, or in the States. Up in Canada, it's Indigo and Chapters and probably a few others. But you've got to go online. Do you have and a website? I don't have a website. I um, have a Facebook site, which mm-hmm. is uh, under Vancouver, uh, C-City Vancouver. And um, <clears throat> I also have it a website called Terry Tabando, which is my personal uh, website or our Facebook site. And I, I constantly throw things up there 
on those sites uh, from my book and from the things that I come across. So I'm not going to go down the same path that everybody else is going down where they bring up uh, events from 20, 30, 50 years ago because us old-timers will know that already. Mm-hmm. It's the new generation that may not know that. Well, that's fine, but I'm trying to give you information that is more thought-provoking, things that I have concluded. The six-volume series is a conclusive uh, assessment of the UFO and ET phenomena. It's comprehensive. It's definitive. It's conclusive. And you're going to constantly go back and refer to these books because you're going to start judging everything else you read by these books. I've met and talked with some well-known ufologists, and I can tell you that... um, some are only just beginning to go in the same direction as I've been going. I, right. I usually try to stay ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, send me the, those links so I can put those in the notes of this episode so our listeners can hit you up on Facebook and, and get your books on Amazon or whatever preferred seller you want them to purchase. Yeah, as I say, the, you can go to those sites and click on uh, a citizen's disclosure, et cetera, et cetera, and they'll bring up the books and uh, – what I'm trying to do now is to find a way that if somebody wants to buy all the books, can I give them a discounted price that's worth their time and effort? Mm-hmm. Because uh, I can tell you that these books are probably are going to hit you between, if you bought them all, between three to $500. You know, that's what they are. But then if you look at uh, what's in the background, I don't know if you can see that very well, but <clears throat> right above my head is the books, and they stand out from all the other books. Yeah. That's how massive they are. That's incredible that you did that. Great work. I've, I've had people tell me it's a tour de force and that you should teach it in university. You should? Yeah, I, I've approached some of them, and they're, they're hesitant. I think what it is is maybe i got to try American um, universities as opposed to Canadian ones because <laughs> I think they're afraid to venture into areas that they're uncertain of. I think they're afraid here, too. Yeah, yeah, we well, got to get past that too. Yeah. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for for being on, and um, yeah, we'll wrap it up and um, we'll do this again, definitely. All right. We're gonna play the outro. Okay. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. listen to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to everything.
everything imaginable with Gary Cochulio.